0: Morning, And we're going to, uh, this is a, there's a long text attached to this part, and so rather than cover the broad, broad, broad scope of it, I'm going to refer to some earlier parts, but we're going to begin in verse 37. Um, we just admitted publicly some new members, and uh, again, it's always very encouraging to do that. And I want to say this, that, that uh, this is an exhortation to the new members and it's also an exhortation to those who have already joined and taken those same vows. When I, when I say this, I feel like when I do a wedding and I, I give a, a charge to the couple that's standing before me, the, the, the wedding couple, marriage couple, but the charge is also to those who have taken those vows who are sitting out in the, in the congregation. And I would say this to you, that, that our church is going to feel like how you are when we're together. In other words, we cannot bottle or, or pipe in through the ventilation system, you know, a, a, a sense of welcome or warmth or kindness or generosity or seeking out the new face. That will only come as just person by person we do that. So, that again, that's an exhortation to new family and family who have uh, joined earlier But as we we come to this text, I want you to think about this. When you see a new face, and again, this is not so much for a visitor, but somebody who's a member of the church. Let's say you see a new face in this room right now. What are the barriers to walking over and meeting that person and and engaging him or her in conversation? And I don't think there's just one. There's, There's multiple ones. One is just that we get preoccupied. If you have young children and they're, you know, now jumping off the piano or something, you you know, you're preoccupied and you're running to take care of them. Uh, Selfishness, we just, you know, I see the people that I know and I go over to talk to the people that I know and then time goes by and maybe that visitor has has left. Um, But I would say that certainly one thing that has to be a factor is when you see someone, there can, there can really be a felt sense of, okay, I have got all I can keep straight in my mind right now. In other words, I, I, I don't know that there is enough me left over to learn a new name or to invite them over to lunch or to talk for these five or ten minutes. I just, I mean, it's kind of all I can do to get here and just, and just be. That would absolutely, I would, I would run dry. That's in us. Uh, you, you could feel that in a community group. Uh, if you're visiting, we, we have these groups, and they meet all over our city, and even some a little bit out, out from Greenville. And these are subsets of downtown Presbyterian. We get together, and we, uh, we eat, we chat, visit, catch up, talk about, the text that we look at the previous Sunday, pray together. All all the groups feel a little bit different. And when a group really gels, then how, how would you feel about a new face? I mean, how would you feel about a new face that within 30 seconds of meeting this person, you can tell this person is going to need a lot of me? Uh, all of us, I think, feel that... It, as we said at the beginning, whatever resources I have within me, I hit the edge of it all the time. You know, that I come to the cusp of what I feel like I'm able to to give out or extend or share. And what I want to say to you as we go to this text is that Jesus is giving us very good news because He is saying that through who I am, and through, at this point, what I'm going to do, I'm not only going to give you all that you need, but instead of just filling your cup, I'm going to do what the psalmist said. Uh, Your cup is going to overflow. John chapter 7, beginning in verse 37. On the last day... "...of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, "'If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. "'Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, "'out of his heart will flow rivers of living water.'" Now this he said about the Spirit... Whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Let's pray together. Father, just as there are barriers to us being warmer, to being more selfless to seek out the new face, to welcome that person, to hear their story, to break bread together. Father, in the same way, there, there are barriers to us hearing you. And We sit here and we are bored, or we're distracted, or we're hungry physically, or we feel cold toward you or we're angry, and we pray that as we are, that now you would dig out ears for us, that we might hear you rightly, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. I want to look at a couple of things from from this text, and again, I'm going to refer a little bit outside of the text, a little bit more than I usually do, but that was so that we wouldn't have a, a page and a half of text. And, uh, and really focus more on the, these few verses. But what I want to look at is, what is the context of these words? Where is Jesus saying it? What's going on around him as he says it? And then the second thing is, what is Jesus' claim? He's standing up and he's claiming something very strong. What, what's the claim? All right. First off, what's the context? It says in verse 37 that this is at a feast... And I want to unpack that a little bit more, but but before I do, let me just say this. This is something that is really interesting about the Gospel of John. If you get out, um, you know, there's all kinds of study tools if you want to study the Bible. One of them is called a concordance. You can actually get these for other works of literature, but you can look up every word that appears in the Bible and, and where it appears and how many times. And if you look up the word feast, there are a bunch of hits in the Gospel of John. And you begin to realize that John is doing this very intentionally. The whole book is very intentional. Uh, For instance, when Jesus does His first miracle, it's not at a nationwide Jewish feast, but it's at a a wedding feast. And then that's in John chapter 2. And you get later in John chapter 2, and Jesus is interacting with a crowd, and He's in Jerusalem because it's a feast. And then it says that uh, there's a feast and a crowd of people go to follow him. But, but and over and over and over and over, the narrative is built around the feasts of Judea. And what is John saying? He's, and this is going to be important the further we go. He's saying that everything that we celebrate in these feasts, the Passover, uh, the Feast of Booths that we're about to look at, these other feasts, everything is found in Jesus Christ. It's found in Jesus Christ. Now, it doesn't say this in the verses that we read, but earlier in John 7, John identifies which feast this is. It's an Old Testament feast called the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths. If you've ever been looking on your you know, uh, day planner or, or your wall calendar and you see the word Sukkot, S-U-K-K-O-T, it's, it's this feast. It's, it's, it was a few weeks ago. What this was, was a feast that God commanded that had to deal with the end of the harvest. It's called by different names. It's called the Feast of Booths. It's called the Feast of the Gathering. It was actually called later, this is not so much a biblical name, but it was a name that people gave to it, the Season of Our Joy. The Season of Our Joy. It was seven days long. It ended up being more celebrated eight days as just other traditions grew but in this day if you said i'm going to the feast you wouldn't even have to identify which one you meant like in other words if i was talking to you and i said the flag you would know that basically without me explaining i mean the american flag the flag when you said the feast you didn't mean the passover or any of the other ones. You meant the Feast of Booths. Now, what was this thing about? Okay, a couple of ideas here, and and you can get them from the name. One, the Feast of Booths. What is a booth? These were just sort of little temporary huts that Jewish families would build, and so they would be made out of branches and twigs and, 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 you know, kind of flowers and other vegetation, and it was a temporary shelter. And the thing is, there were other Jewish celebrations that you could celebrate at home. But the Feast of Booths was one of the feasts where every male Israelite had to go to Jerusalem. And so if you lived in Jerusalem, you would set up one on your roof or out in front of your home. But if you didn't, you would just kind of scour the landscape in that area for these little natural building supplies and set up these temporary shelters all over Jerusalem. This would have been like, it really would have been like a Woodstock kind of look, that you would just, as you drew near to Jerusalem, maybe it's not anything like Woodstock, but as you're you're draw near to Jerusalem, there are no vans with flowers. But you do see these, these temporary shelters just all over the landscape, just thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And that was at God's command to hearken their memory back to when... They left slavery. And before they reached the promised land, all their their shelter was temporary. You know, some translations say it's the feast of tabernacles. In the wilderness, God lived in His big tabernacle, which we talked about this summer. And then all the Israelites lived in their little, their tents, their tabernacles, their booths. And it was a way of saying, this God is so good. Our God is so good, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that you can feel His goodness even if you're living in a shelter. Even if you're living in stuff made out of vegetation, He he loves you, He cares for you, He will sustain you, He will not forget you. This was a time to remember that. But it was also called the Feast of Ingathering because of the timing at the end of the harvest. And think about this. Um, We all have very different kinds of work. and and different rhythms of work. Um, If you're a CPA and you do a lot of individual people or families' taxes, April 16th is a beautiful thing to you. But that's not the rhythm that all of our work schedules fall by. April 16th, I think, is a pretty normal day for me. But think about when you had a, a society that was almost wholly agrarian. And you did have people that produced merchandise and had stores and things like that, but really the rhythms of life were agrarian. And so here's what that meant. How great would it be when not just you, yourself, or you, your family, but really almost the entire nation hit this same threshold where you kind of you put up the crops and you closed the barn door and you put up your tools and you wiped your hands and it was time to go to this feast for seven days. And what's awesome is that, and this is beautiful because you get the caricature of the mean Old Testament God. In at least two different places, God commands at this feast you have to rejoice. You have to rejoice. You know, even you stodgy, mean farmers, put up your stuff, look at how the work is done. I provided for you. I mean, this is pre irrigation. You know, there's not piping going all through Judea. I took care of you. I provided. Put up your stuff and come together. And be, you have to have a good time. You have to come to Jerusalem and have a good time. All the males in all of Israel in Judea once a year. Now, there's this one other detail that's given in verse 37. It says that when Jesus said what we're about to hear... It's the last day of the feast. And what we've learned from other sources is that there was this tradition that God did not command. that grew over time. And the tradition was this, was that the high priest would take a vessel, a pitcher, and would dip water in the pool of Siloam. And then there would be this procession through Jerusalem to the altar... Of the temple. There'd be a procession actually around the altar. And the last day of the feast, there was this very high moment where at the end of the procession, people have been f- following behind the high priest and they've been singing. Water would be poured out. Water would be poured out. People would be shouting, pour the water out. And it was this it, festive, sober, but joyful, intense moment to say... Not only is God the one who pours out the water on the parched ground, but over time, this celebration began to be linked with the coming of the Messiah. That one of these days, God is going to send the one. And in the same way that water put on parched ground brings forth fruit and vegetation, you know, life itself, that God is going to send the one. He'll be the prophet, the priest, and the king, and he will pour out God's own water on our hearts and on our land and bring all the life that we crave. The Feast of Booths. Okay, that last day, when all of Jerusalem is packed out and the emotion is at a high level, there are witnesses that say, Jewish sources that said, you have not seen joy until you have seen this feast. You have not seen a party or happiness until you've seen this in Jerusalem that week. At that moment, Jesus says this. Now, what does He claim? Look in verse 38. Excuse me, verse 37. Jesus stood up, and this is very important. He cried out. The New Testament is written in Greek. Now, there is a Greek verb that means says, like I'm talking to you conversational tone. And there's another verb that means yell out. That's the verb that's used here. And so you don't have like, you know, the, the, the painting Jesus who's from Illinois and has like chestnut hair and talks at a mild, you know, very reasonable tone of voice. You've got at this high moment him standing up and yelling this. And he's going to yell something that we've heard before, And then he's going to yell something that's a new claim. All right, what does he claim? Here's the claim that we've heard before. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. In other words, Jesus, yet again, is using this biblical sort of language. The psalmist uses this, that God, I thirst for you. In a dry and dreary land, I thirst for you. And what God is saying is, you have these deep, deep, level thirsts. And in the same way that if you really, really are parched, dehydrated, out, no drink really does it but water. There's a point where nothing will quit except water. And in the same way, I've made you in such a way that you know that something's missing. And what's wrong with your heart is you will go after everything but me. And I'm telling you, that thirst is for me. But if you will trust me and not turn away from me, turn to me, I will quench your thirst. And it won't cost you a dime. I'll give it to you because I love you. Now, isn't it interesting that already in the Gospel of John, over and over and over, Jesus is showing up in the context of people being replenished. Hey, we've got this wedding going on, and we just ran out of wine. What are we going to do? We've got a party, and we don't have any wine, and there's Jesus. Or here's this woman with a shameful story, and she's coming to a well in the middle of the day. And she's coming in the middle of the day so that she won't run into anybody. And she gets there, and there's this peasant man, sort of itinerant rabbi guy, sitting there, and he starts talking to her about, boy, we sure need water, don't we? Or there's 5,000 men, plus all the women and children, who knows, 15,000, 20,000 people, show up in this big crowd to hear Jesus, and the day goes on, and there's nothing to eat. And it would take an absolutely wealthy person to buy food for all, the, all these people, and there's Jesus. Over and over and over, I will give you, the real replenishment that your heart craves. We've heard that claim. It's very important. But then he makes a new claim. Look in verse 38. It says, Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then the Apostle John helps us understand this with this note. It says, Now this He said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in Him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because, and this is important, Jesus was not yet glorified. What does that mean? Did the Holy Spirit, this is the third person of the Trinity, there's God the Father, God the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit, it's very interesting, and it's important that, that you get this. God, the Holy Spirit, is not like middle management Trinity. He is Yahweh. He is full God. He is just as much God, if I can put it that way, as God the Father and God the Son. And He's not an it. He's a he. Do you see Him in the Old Testament? Yes, you do, very clearly. David talks about, Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Okay, Then why is John saying that the Spirit had not yet been given? And he's saying this. He's saying there is this big difference between the Holy Spirit that you see in the Old Testament and the Holy Spirit that you see in the New. What is the difference? It's this that when the Messiah came, Jesus, and laid down His life and died, He rose again and He ascended back into heaven. We don't talk about that a lot, the ascension. The ascension used to be as big a deal in the church calendar as Christmas. And when He ascended, He did something that He promised He would do as this conquering king who would give good gifts to His subjects, his, His friends... He gives the Holy Spirit in power. And now what the Holy Spirit does is not come to you and give you neat, groovy feelings or give you neat sort of, you know, kung fu ninja insights about things. This sort of like, you know, cool, supernatural hunches. But what He, although He does that, I think in some ways, but He comes to you and He points you back to what Christ has done and the fullness of it and how it's the answer to everything. I I didn't quote this part, but in the first verse of, of John 7, or the first or second verse, it says this, that everybody's about to head to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths. And I don't quite know what to do with this text because Jesus knows what He's going to do. But it says that Jesus had real misgivings about going because he knew that the Jews were going to kill him. And then he gets there, and at first he's keeping a very low profile. His brothers told him, why don't you go if you want people to get your message? Why don't you go? He said, why don't you go? Every time is good for you. I have my own time. You go. And they headed to Jerusalem, and then he basically walked out right behind them on his own time, on his own terms. And he gets there, and then he he begins teaching publicly. And it just said, he had real misgivings about going. They're going to kill me. They've said it. He goes to the temple and he begins teaching in front of everyone. And there's this exchange in John 7 where he says to a crowd, why are you trying to kill me? And the crowd says back to him, are you demon possessed? We're not trying to kill you. What does he know? He knows hearts. He knows the future. And here's what he knows. Everything that you're celebrating here cannot come through your celebration. I mean, you want the ultimate celebration where all God's people come together and they're in Jerusalem and they're singing before Him and there's feasting and the work is done. And even if we're just in these little huts, we're there together together. And there's joy in our hearts. That's what you want. This feast will not give you what you ultimately want. For you to ultimately have what you want, I would have to take on myself everything that's sad. Everything that detracts from joy. Everything that leads to your fragmentation. And bear the curse for it. That's what they didn't know, but he knew And he walks into Jerusalem and yet again places himself in harm's way. He doesn't die yet, but it's coming. And it is the work of the Holy Spirit again and again to point individuals and to point God's people as a whole back to that is the answer for everything. That having a significant other is not the real water. Getting a job or getting a better job is not the water. Feeling better about yourself is not the water. Becoming happier is not the water. He's the water. And this is the claim that Jesus makes. If you come to me and drink, you'll never be thirsty. But then he says this, you will become rivers of living water. There's been a lot of debate about what does that mean? We don't have any power to make the living water. No. He's saying this. Think about a well. A well does not possess the power to create H2O out of nothing. Where does H2O come from? Biblically speaking, realistically, God. God makes H2O. And He makes it fall down and it gathers and it not only goes to rivers and creeks, But it goes down to the earth, these subterranean places. It makes springs, and if you put a well in the right place, you can tap in to what God made. You can have it there for people to access. It doesn't make the water. It's where water's provided. And Jesus is saying this, I'm the living water, but if you'll drink of me, what I'm going to do is not only quench your thirst, I'm going to make you... Rivers, you'll be rivers. And I want to ask you this this morning: Do you feel that you are at the end of your resources? If you don't, well, we know one thing about you: you're young, and you're uh, you probably of of a sunny disposition. But even you are moving toward it. And what is it that we get from God? Let's just be very simple. From Him, we receive undeserved love. And it's not just that we get that, that our hearts crave and it quenches our thirst, but when people trust in Christ, He fills you with His Spirit so that you become, not the source of it, but the, main, the conduit of it coming to others. Is there someone in your life that you feel like, they are just depleting me. I have nothing else to offer. If there's not, we probably need to repent. It means that we're walling ourselves off. And it's not to say that there aren't times where we need rest. Many a pastor, many a missionary, many a well-meaning Christian has absolutely burned themselves out because they would not stop. They could not take a real day off. They could not have Sabbath. They could not take care of their body. Yes, got to do those things. It's kind of a different sermon. But what about your soul's resources? Jesus is saying there will be more than enough. even for that person that you feel like, I have nothing else to give. I I have said this before, and I'll say it again. I I would propose to you that there is no group of people in the city of Greenville who go around with more guilt than professing Christian mothers of young children. And the reason for that is because the end of the rope. And you always could have done better. And you always could have done more. You always could have given more. You could have been more selfless. I could have read that, done that, fixed that. If you need good news because you are at the end of your rope, the good news is not, hey, now go out of here and be the mom you're supposed to. Let's close in prayer. That's not good news. I I hope you'll be the mom you're supposed to be. But you know what? What you need to know is that Jesus is living water. That you need to drink from Him, not your vows to do better. And as you do so, do you know what? There's this weird economy, mathematics, where it's not just that the water quenches your thirst, but you become a conduit. That as you receive love, you give love. We emulate what we get from God. What about those of you who have been hurt very, very deeply? And I don't mean garden variety, he pulled out in front of me in traffic and it really irritated me. But I mean betrayals, breaking of vows, breaking of promises, deep heart hurt. And you look at the scripture saying, forgive your enemies. And there's this felt sense of, okay, look, I'll forgive all but that one. But that is in a different category. Because you don't know what they did to me. And what Jesus is saying is, you know what, if I only told you that there'd be a well in your heart, you might be right. If I'd only said that there's a river in your heart, now well, you might be right. But it doesn't say river. It says rivers. Be rivers of living water. How, what is your vision of your life? is your vision of life that I will get Jesus and He will be my well and I will gather around this well and the people I like will gather around this well and we'll have it? Because if that is your vision, really, you're not so much a well, you you are a dam. And there is this river of mercy and love that is undeserved flowing through the history of the Bible and the history of redemption, and that you say it stops here and we pool this water so that none leaks out. What is our vision of Greenville? Is it I'm going to always get a good night's rest and I'm going to stay interesting by reading interesting things, I'm going to go to my job, I'm going to work out, I'm going to have deep, meaningful friendships, and that's about all I can do. Or is it that we are a conduit to a city that is more parched than it realizes? That is the good news for us. That rivers can flow out of our hearts. And I want to end with a story that really drove this home for me. Um, November 8th, there's two things that we, um, in my mind, commemorate on November 8th. One have to mention this, is that my first child was born 10 years ago today. Happy birthday, Henry Habe. Um, that's the happy one. And here's the sad one. Three years ago today, our denomination's campus minister at Furman, a guy named Dustin Salter, um, had just bought a new mountain bike. And he um, decided to take it for a spin... Right around supper time, with his kids, and this, he wasn't going down a dangerous trail. It was just kind of a spin around the block, and he somehow came off his bike and he struck his head uh, on the pavement. Traumatic head injury, uh, choppered to Greenville Memorial on November eighth, and um, ended up passing away that next March and. Um, Redeemer Presbyterian up in Traveler's Rest was the Psalter's church home, but they were also involved with us. And so our two churches really walked through this together. And a moment that I really remember from that time was just a couple of days after Dustin's injury. And we're sitting in the ICU at Memorial, and it's just a timeless room. It's a timeless space. 4 p.m. is like 2 a.m. It makes no difference. They're just people sitting and waiting and crying and waiting for news. And Dustin's wife's name is Leanne. His friends flew in immediately from Fort Worth to be with her and to support her family. And Leanne and a couple of other folks and I were sitting talking, and one of Leanne's close friends looked up at me and said, I want to tell you something. She said, Your church, it's not my church, but you know what she means, and Redeemer Prez have restored my faith. And I just sort of nodded and told her, That's encouraging, and thank you, Lord. I did not ask her what she was talking about because evidently something hurt her in the church badly. But what was interesting to me is that at that moment, as we interacted with the Psalters, no one knew what to do. What do you do when a man has this traumatic head injury and his wife doesn't know what to do and there's young children? No one knows the flowchart. No one knows what to do. But God's people showed up and they prayed and they hugged and they cried and they tried to insert humor where appropriate and they brought things and they ran errands and it was all unscripted and to her it was water. Did we make the water? Did Redeemer Perez make the water? No, God makes the water. But inadvertently, rivers... Flowed out of God's people and helped her. Let's not live as dams. And let's not be dams to Greenville. Because we're not. We're rivers. Let's pray. Dear Father, We do ask that you would have mercy on us for living as if living water that has quenched our thirst is now something to be hoarded and only enjoyed by those whom we naturally click with or naturally like, naturally want to be with. Oh Lord, thank you for quenching our thirst. We pray that if anyone is here whose thirst has not been quenched, that you would enable them to believe, to take you, Jesus, at your word and have their thirst quenched. But we pray that as we do so, that we would be rivers. That, O Lord, we would see through deeds of kindness, or through words, or through silence, or listening, or availability, that water would flow from us, out of us, to a parched city and a parched world. Do this, we pray, not for our glory, but for yours. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.